Good afternoon. It's Tuesday, the 12th of October, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border, and also Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern Approaches from the Netherlands. So a full team, Mike. A full team on the basis that we weren't able to broadcast on Monday because of work going on with uh with uh, internet connections and so on. So apologies for that. But we're going to get straight on here uh, with this. Uh, this is uh, fake news, uh, the broadcaster's dilemma. This was the Royal Television Society. Uh, they were holding a symposium a couple of days ago and session 13 was called fake news, the broadcaster's dilemma. It featured Mariana Spring, who's the, as many of you will know, the specialist disinformation and social media reporter at the BBC. Uh, it also featured Matthew Price, editor of Data and Forensics Unit, Sky News, and Deborah Turnus, who's the chief executive of ITN. Uh, and it was chaired by another BBC person, Naga Muchetti. Uh, and uh, the subtitle on this was, uh, How Does TV News Cope in an Age of Disinformation? Um, and they say they, they, in the blurb for this that the infiltration of fake news in today's society isn't just a scourge for those in the newsroom. It affects the authority of whole media brands on one side and the public's well-being on the other. Since the term fake news was made, Collins Dictionary's word of the year in 2017, it has only become a bigger issue. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that sounds like a declaration that the BBC is very, very worried that people are picking up on the fact that their news is not worth watching. Uh, it's not just the BBC, because Sky and ITN very much uh, expressing that view as well. Uh, but let's start off with, uh, with Matthew, uh, Matthew Price from Sky News. Uh, just have a, a quick listen to this. Touched upon the idea of a story and how big it is before you um, actually start tackling it when something's gone viral. Matthew, it Journalism still, at the end of the day, is journalism. So just getting those smaller stories or what are considered smaller stories right, if we do that, that lays a, a solid foundation, doesn't well, it? Well, look, Marianne has just absolutely nailed the point there. <clears throat> it's still about journalism, and it's still about checking, well, is this story about some woman in Texas foot true? And, and if, you, if you just continue to keep that at the heart of everything you, you do... It doesn't tackle the misinformation that out there, is out there, but it, but it makes sure that what we as journalists are putting out is accurate and correct. Um, I, I, the helicopter was shown there. Yeah. I mean, actually, if you've got a bit of institutional knowledge and experience within your newsroom, a, a, a lot of your staff will remember that helicopter shot from Libya because it was such a moment when the Libyan rebels took over and Gaddafi had fallen and that helicopter was driven off crazily down the road. So the moment it pops up, anybody with institutional knowledge in your newsroom knows that that is not from Afghanistan today. So my first thoughts on this are that the organization that many people would think would have the most institutional knowledge is the BBC. It's the oldest. It's the oldest of the broadcast media institutions. Um, so we should just remember uh, the BBC's record on this and just choose a couple of examples. So uh, here's an example. This was uh, experienced newsroom experts who failed to correctly identify this video clip that was put out on, uh, on BBC Breakfast, uh, claimed by the BBC to be celebrations in Tripoli following the NATO bombing of Libya, when in fact it was footage from India. And we can't forget, of course, uh, the other famous one, uh, World Trade Center 7, uh, and uh, BBC claiming that World Trade Center 7 had collapsed, uh, when in fact, as you can see from the arrow there, it was 
standing quite proudly right behind the uh, reporter. It's building building seven, I building remember. Seven, yes, yeah. building yeah. seven, World Trade Center seven. So, uh, the BBC subsequently claimed that this was because the Reuters news agency had mistakenly reported the collapse of the building, uh, and that was picked up by CNN and then by the BBC. Uh, and uh, Reuters, they say, had uh, later issued a correction. But clips of the report continue to go viral in the days leading up to 9-11 anniversaries, the BBC says. So this is all a bit ironic. Uh, David, maybe we should welcome you to the programme and say, what do you think of that particular position that, uh, you know, there is an acknowledgement there from, from the Sky New Matthew Price uh, that the, the, it's incumbent upon the mainstream press uh, to, to be accurate in everything that they do, and yet they constantly fail in that endeavour. Yes, and he's not addressing why, because, because firstly, he can't address the failure. He can't admit the failure. He can't admit the scale of it, because that requires honesty and, hum and humility. And then, it, that means he doesn't get at the core question. And the core question is, what does he mean by truth? Right? He doesn't mean things that are existentially true, because when you go deeply enough into what these people believe, they do not believe in any such thing. What you have is power. And power says something, authoritative sources, trusted sources say something, that is by definition in their view true. It's not defi by definition in our view true. We have an older definition of truth, uh, which is, is founded on something much deeper, much grander, much greater. And the, the BBC and, 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 and Sky News, etc., can't address this uh, because they can't be honest enough with themselves to address it. Uh, indeed. So let's uh, come back to Matthew Price. Uh, he went on. Um, you also saw in that video just briefly one of the articles that Sanya and Victoria on my team did on the anti-vaxxer movement. And, and one of the interesting things when they were analysing that was the fact that, uh, and again those headlines popped up there, there aren't news organisations that put out headlines that... I don't know if you remember seeing the video of a woman who was apparently sitting on a bench, minding her own business, and got arrested by the police when, because she was an anti-vaxxer. Well, actually, when, when you really looked into that story, um, she'd been sitting on the bench after a day of ignoring the police who were telling her to go away and stop going to protests and don't do this. So there was, there was history there, and that was the real context, and yet... The, the newspaper headlines that Victoria and Sanya were looking at and when they were doing their anti-vaxxer piece were suggesting that this woman had just been snatched and they were repeating the video, they were giving the links to the video and everything. So there, there, there's also, I, I think, the need for the, the, us not to repeat some of this stuff. Well, I, I, I just want to say straight away, how disingenuous can you get? Because the real context of the story is why the woman was doing what she was doing. What is the story about the woman? Exactly. Yeah. So, so he's already dived in at the spin level. Well, indeed. But but aside from that, he's suggesting that that because the police had come, I mean, was she doing anything illegal? No. What 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 right does the police have to come along and say you may not attend a demonstration? So, uh, sorry, David, you've got your hand up there. Well, yeah, no, I was just about to say exactly the same thing. The the core issue is she was peaceful. She was lawful. But the, the state had rescinded her rights and made her lawful action something that the police would then be arresting her for. That's the story. And he couldn't see it. 
Well, I suspect they can see it, but they don't want to cover it. Uh, just before we move on to the issue of razor blades, uh, Alex, just uh, give us your thoughts on this so far. Uh, those watching from abroad may not know who Naga Manchetti is. She presents an eminently forgettable daytime chat show on BBC television. And last year, she became uh, an outrage to people who don't even watch any news, let alone breakfast chat, uh, because they interviewed a conservative politician who had a union flag in his room, uh, which, of course, many people have died uh, under and for, including here in the Netherlands, uh, while liberating this country. And she giggled quite broadly with her face up to her mouth and sloped her shoulders uh, like a schoolgirl. And then the BBC spent a while defending her and saying that the proper context for this giggle was something completely different and she was actually uh, having a laugh at an up-himself politician. Uh, so the BBC uh, talks about accuracy, but it used until a couple of years ago to have a further punchline in its slogan, and that was impartiality. Uh, in fact, they used to always emphasize that word. We are accurate and impartial in all that we do. Uh, impartiality surely means not insulting the nation that pays your fees. Well, quite possibly. Uh, but let's uh, have a, a final uh, little clip from Matthew uh, Price. Uh, just have a listen to this. And, and, and then just finally, we've got to be really, really careful when we choose to pick up on a story. And, and we were talking about this over dinner last night. This is a slightly awkward one because both Sky and the BBC covered the story I'm about to mention. Um, and you may have seen it um, online because it was quite a clickable story about a woman who had taken down an anti-vaccination poster um, and had cut herself on the razor blades that was on the back of the poster. And this went everywhere. Um, uh, news teams covered it. Um, and yet, actually, interestingly, the, the, the two reporters I've mentioned on my team, and you said the same for you and, and the people of your age group, instantly smelt a rat on that one. Um, and, uh, social media people have been try, uh, looking into this, have been realizing it's not quite all it seemed. Um, and there's a lot more to that story. It seems there's a particularly vulnerable individual who did the original post in the background, who, who, who made up part of it and felt compelled to tell news teams that the story was bigger than it was. But I think we've got to be really, really careful before we jump on something that seems to be true before we put it out. Because if we're putting out stuff that isn't true or isn't all that it purports to be, then we undermine our own journalism, and then we add fuel to the fire of people who say, you can't trust us. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, Matthew Price, but you, you, you just lied. You just lied, and I'll explain why you just lied. We covered this issue of the razor blades story not so long ago. This is Sky News. Uh, COVID-19, sorry, anti-vaccine posters found with razor blades attached to the back of them to cut people as they're taken down, Union says. This is from Sky News who Matthew Price is representing, and he says, he said that they instantly smelt a rat when they came across this story. But they didn't instantly come smell a rat because that story uh, that's on screen at the moment was published in September, okay? And if you remember, this was a headline uh, quoting a union boss, here he is, Mick Lynch, saying, any anti-vax conspiracy theorist resorting to this disgusting practice of lacing their propaganda with razor blades needs to know that they'll face prosecution. The BBC covered this story as well. Uh, and this uh, particular screenshot is from the Wayback Machine because the BBC actually changed their headline on this one. So the London transport staff warned of anti-vaccination posters with razor blades. Um, and uh, that resulted in a Matt Hancock tweet. So he, got, he weighed in on the story uh, saying that anti-vax propaganda is bad enough, but to put razor blades on anti-vax leaflets to harm people when removing them is horrific. 
Okay, but th the point is that the BBC changed the headline later on following the Hancock tweet to accuse anti-mask uh, posters, not uh, anti-vax posters. But Matthew Price claims that they instantly knew that it was a, that they were smelling a rat here. But the BBC had originally reported this story in Ju July, so instantly smelling a rat. July, August, September, three months later. Is that instant rat smelling going on there? Three months later, Sky News publishes a, a, an article about razor blades on the London Underground, which, by the way, was complete fake news because it never happened. But the original story, Cardiff Woman Cut by Razor uh, Behind Anti-Mask Poster, was published by the BBC in July. Um, and, uh, but it took social media to discover how fake this was because the person who had uh, issued or created this story in the first place uh, was not telling the truth or certainly wasn't telling the whole truth. So the person who claims that this happened to them claims they were disemboweled by a stranger in Leeds, then walked to the hospital carrying their own intestines. So the person in, in question had a history of making these kinds of uh, uh, claims. Uh, but the mainstream media didn't care about that when they originally published the story in July. And then they repeated the story in September. And it was only in September uh, that this person here, N3KO Cardiff, um, was uh, sort of outed as being the person behind it and, and the claims, uh, the rather strange claims that, uh, uh, that they'd been disemboweled at one point while they were walking through Leeds. Um, so, but this, it gets worse, David, because about the same time that Matthew Price was making that statement to the symposium, the Press and Journal published this article, Vaccine Centre Staff in Aberdeen warned to look out for razor blades in protest signs. So they're still banging this same drum and it's still a lie. Going on, it's still a lie. Um, and I was astonished. I mean, the Press and Journal, um, so owned by DC Thompson's, they own some excellent titles. I don't any longer consider the Press and Journal to be one of them because they've got a history of playing the narrative of, of state interests to a huge degree from that particular ancient newspaper. Um, but this was uh, an article which I was astonished to find because we had gone through why this was wrong. Um, the, the industry, the, the mainstream press knew this story was wrong. And here a few days ago, it pops up in the press and journal and it's been used to terrify people and it's been used to make people um, feel uh, animus towards anyone who's who's fighting against the official pro-vax, pro-mask, pro-COVID line from the state. It's it's demonising people who oppose the state line. Surely the press and journal should have known this by that point, by that time. Um, I was very disappointed that they were running it. So you wrote to the editor of the press and journal and said, Dear Sir, I believe the article Vaccine Centre Staff in Aberdeen warned to look out for razor blades and protest signs is what is commonly termed fake news. Can you please advise one who provided your uh, organization uh, with the information and two, what steps you took to confirm that the warning represents a reasonable threat assessment and not state propaganda? Thank you in anticipation. Undoubtedly, David, you got an immediate response. I've had silence, not a squeak. I've, I've written to the editor and I've also written to the journalist who it transpires is a political 
is on the political beat, not health, not safety, not general news. It's, it's politics this person normally reports on. Uh, I have had, I've had no response from either the journalist or the editor. Uh, but uh, who is Ms Dunbar, who you've also written to? She, she's the local MSP, uh, a new MSP, she's telling everyone, so don't expect too much just yet. Um, but she was quoted in the Press and Journal. She was saying how concerned she was uh, about the situation. So I asked her for a comment on the effect of fake news because she has constituents who will be against vaccination, who will feel that, that they do not want to be vaccinated and will feel that they will be subject to prejudice and bullying and coercion. And of course, stories like this simply add to this. So I feel that she's a, a duty of care towards those constituents to speak up on their behalf. Uh, I did drop her a line. It was only this morning. Uh, we've not had a reply so far. Okay, thank you, David. Now, uh, one final little piece of video from this uh, this sym symposium, and it is Mariana Spring herself, and she was asked about the abuse that she has experienced on social media since she took up the role as a disinformation specialist. Uh, let's have a listen to this. Mariana, can you tell us some of your experiences and kind of how you, how you deal with that, how you cope with that? Yeah, um, I mean, I found myself... Uh, very, very regularly targeted with uh, death threats, rape threats, um, really vile abuse on social media. Um, and that's across social media. It'll be in my Instagram messages or my Facebook messages or on Twitter. Um, and it certainly escalated in the time that I've been covering this topic. You get in touch with me all the time to tell me about how conspiracies or trolling or disinformation are impacting their own lives. And that rapport is so important, but it's that rapport that leaves me open to this really extreme online hate. Um, so what Mariana Spring claims she's receiving is extreme online hate. Um, I would like to know what evidence she has about who's sending this alleged online hate to her. But of course, that resulted in her publishing uh, with Panorama uh, the idea that um, the anti-lockdown movement is effectively a, a gateway into far-right extremism uh, and potentially violent extremism. Um, so, you know, Mariana Spring very much pushing this narrative as well. And if that was the main theme of this particular uh, session and the symposium. But just to end this section, I want to just bring everybody's attention uh, to this article published yesterday by Ian Davis on the UK column website, blaming anyone who questions COVID-19 policy for a new wave of terrorism. Uh, and what Ian is quite clearly showing here, uh, and maybe I'll get some comments from Alex because Alex uh, proofread this. Um, what, what Ian is very clearly showing here is a timeline of the development of a narrative, a propaganda narrative, Alex, uh, which is intended to um, very much paint anybody involved with uh, the anti-lockdown movement or the anti-vaccination movement, if there is such a thing, um, as, uh, as being a, a terrorist, an extremist. Um, I wonder what you think of, of Ian's article and, and, and the points that he's making. This article is a work for posterity because when, God forbid, the false flag or false flags occur, uh, we cannot, uh, no one can legitimately say that they were not warned that this was on its way. Uh, one of our commenters in the chat box has already asked the main question which Ian Davis himself raises in the article, which is if death threats are made towards Mariana Spring and other BBC journalists, Ian has many examples of these false claims in the article, do read it, uh, where are the traced IP addresses? 
where are these death threats? Where are the charges? Uh, as with claims about the, the so-called falseness of satanic ritual abuse, uh, the, the, the greatest disproof of this is that courts in that case do hear that there are SRA details of abuse and, con and juries convict on that basis. We Here we have the opposite situation because the BBC and other mainstream media uh, outlets are deliberately misusing terms. They're even talking about in-person attacks and using that now to mean uh, questions about people online, uh, which of course is wrong use of the English language. And yet there is never a conviction, let alone a jury, uh, or sorry, even, never even charges pressed by prosecutorial authorities in various countries, let alone that a jury or a judge uh, accepts that evidence. But I think that um, David was possibly a little harsh there on uh, the Scottish press, particularly the Aberdeen uh, Press and Journal, because we've just heard from Matthew Price of Sky News that we must always report in context. And the correct context for the Scottish press has actually been set this week, uh, according to Hamish Mackay writing in the Scottish Review, Quote, Scotland's journalists have come in for fulsome praise at this year's Scottish Press Awards ceremony. Longtime chair of the judges, Denise West, told guests at the event in Glasgow the quality of Scottish press output has never been higher. Context, please. Uh, David, I can't uh, let that one pass without some comment from you. I think that's stand-up. That's that's deeply funny. I, I, would, I would say in my own defence here, we're, we're going to say positive things probably in extra time, but other... I, elements in the Scottish press, because there has been some very good reporting this week. Um, but my comments about the press in general uh, came from observations very minutely when they were covering local stories. And uh, remarkably, um, they, were, they were getting fed information, quite doubtful information, by the institutionally corrupt Procurator Fiscal Service, uh, uh, Crown Office and Procurator Fiscal Service, the state prosecutor. Um, ahead of the person concerned, even knowing that, that uh, the, these developments were about to affect them. Uh, I, I, I found that quite um, reprehensible and uh, nothing I've seen in the press and journal ever since has uh, caused me to change my view. Um, okay, thank you for that, David. Now, Alex, uh, let's move on. Well, back to Marianne Spring, in fact. And uh, well, I mean, this must be part of the reason if she is receiving uh, comments from people, this must be part of the reason because, of course, Marianne Spring is busy lurking in, in uh, social media channels, uh, trying to engage people, trying to suck people into making statements, which she can then report in a particular it's, way. It's inciting, isn't it, in yes. some cases? It is indeed, and here is a viewer who has shared this with us uh, for, to, to show. So Mariana, not for the only time that we know, is uh, excluding her surname. Sometimes she goes by Mariana Clare, or I think even her mother's uh, name has been suggested at one point as a surname for her. But here we are. Hi, name, I hope you're well, says Mariana. I am a specialist reporter at the BBC, which is a bit of a giveaway. If you look for that phrase, you'll find Mariana Spring's name straight away. Looking into grand solar minimum and climate lockdown claims. And I noticed some of your posts on Telegram. You'll notice that this app is within Telegram. This message is within the Telegram app, if you know the format of the page. Would you be happy for me to ask you some questions on here or on the phone off the record at this stage? Thanks for your time. Our viewer replies, are you Mariana Spring? And what guarantee do I have that this is off the record? Bar your word, which is worth absolutely nothing. Mariana re replies, yes, I am, i.e. Mariana Spring, and it is off the record. I would never break my word on that unless you had agreed to it being on the record. If so I just want to understand a bit more about this topic. 
thanks for your time. And of course, Mariana Spring is using Telegram there. Uh, that makes her a neo-Nazi, according to some of the campaign groups uh, and think tanks, some of them taxpayer funded, that try to lobby our politicians. Now, uh, a bit of a problem there because I was recently in uh, Ukraine, as viewers who've uh, followed us for a while will know. As I was about to fly away from Kiev Borisbil Airport, the leading mobile company in the country, Kiev Star, has this uh, advert for people about to jet set off, and you've ringed it already there at the bottom, Mike. Uh, you will notice the app there, the icon, uh, which is used as emblematic of the average Ukrainian holidaymaker about to jet off to some sunny climb and wanting to stay in touch with family and friends, the church knitting group or whatever it may be. What do they use for that? Yes, that app is Telegram. So uh, in Eastern Europe, it is actually the app of choice. But of course, in Britain and the West, it is for these dark, dodgy people like our viewers to use and for the sleuth Mariana Spring to uh, lurk in. Of course, if you'll find out plotting on Telegram, then you will be a far-right extremist, as uh, the Ian Davis piece up on the website shows. But if you are found to be lying in, on behalf of the agenda, such as the 22-year-old in Cardiff who you were talked about earlier, then uh, the, the mainstream press, uh, such as Sky News' as uh, Matthew Price you just mentioned, will not call you a liar or a plotter. They'll call you a clearly vulnerable person with some mental issues who's crying for help. Uh, yes. Okay, well, let's move on then, Alex, and to France. Uh, and a number of uh, media outlets highlighting this, but uh, the headline in Zero Hedge is uh, French Senate introduces bill uh, to mandate COVID-19 vaccinations for all beginning January the 1st, 2022. Uh, but it's, there's a bit more to it than that, isn't there? Yes, because this has actually been tabled by a committee of the French Upper House. France already has a schedule of 11 mandatory vaccinations. And as with some of the neighbouring countries, Belgium has only one, but the method is the same. You are registered, you're on a population register, which Britain, thank God, still does not officially have yet. And most common law countries have never had such a thing. Uh, but in a civil law uh, scheme with a population register, the local council knows where you are. It knows where the children are. And it writes to the parents or guardians saying, because this child is at X months or years of age, it now has to have its, in Belgium, it's only one mandatory polio vaccination. In France, it's already 11. The French Senator, Senate Committee for Public Health Legislation tried to add a 12th. And if you go back to the slide, we'll see the uh, mugshot of the fetching Paris area Senator, Monsieur Bernard Jomier, who tabled this amendment. Uh, he represents Paris, Ile-de-France, the capital region. And if we look at the uh, text of what he said, people can freeze it if they read French, but basically it was sneaking in, seeking to sneak in the as a 12th uh, mandatory vaccination for children, um, the COVID-19 so-called vaccinations on pain of a fine, which can go up to thousands of euros for a, a repeat refusal. But if you tap that one more time, the top right hand corner says, Rejeté. this particular attempt has been rejected, but there were, there will of course be others in France and in any other, any other country that has grown used to the idea of local government knowing exactly who lives where through a population register. Yes. Okay. Well, th thanks, Alex. Now, uh, David, let's uh, move on to, uh, to this. And uh, uh, daily new COVID-19 deaths per million people in Israel. Uh, yes. I mean, this has to be graph of the week. And whilst uh, correlation is not causation, um, this is extremely striking. So we see here uh, the COVID death rate in Israel um, uh, rumbling up and uh, along, it's not much more than zero, uh, along with Sweden. And then Israel launches dose three, the booster shot, more vaccinations for more protection. And what happens to the death rate? 
it immediately spikes in the most dramatic fashion. And of course, Sweden, which didn't introduce any such uh, measures or, or additional vaccinations, uh, continues to uh, rumble along with next to nothing actually happening. Um, now, this was highlighted by a blog called Bad Catitude, um, and, and, and which handled it in a thoughtful manner. So they're talking about the, the booster shots and the death, up, an update on uh, uh, 26th September. Uh, it says, two weeks ago, I spoke about the relationship between the increase in booster shot uptake in Israel and the uptake in COVID deaths. I updated this a week ago and added what I believe to be a useful metric. The number of people currently in the two-week worry window post-vaccination where, where there has been a well-demonstrated immunosuppression uh, and enhanced COVID susceptibility. Um, and where we've seen many stories of very rapid illness, hospitalisation and death, um, and many vaccine deaths called COVID deaths. And then they illustrate this with another graph. Now, what this shows is based on the vaccination, the third dose vaccination rates, the total number of people who were in this 14-day worry window so this is 14, the blue line is the number of people who are 14 days from receiving their, uh, from their booster shot, and the uh, red line is deaths. Um, and it, 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 it's, the two follow each other very closely, um, and the, there was a big run-up before Yom Kippur where people were going to be seeing their families, so there was a lot of people getting, getting the booster shot in advance of that holiday. Um, so we see this correlation again, between vaccine rollout and a spike in deaths, which we've seen in Scotland in the care homes, we've seen in Britain. I raised it with the Scottish government. I got a nonsensical reply that didn't address the issue. We keep seeing this, and I've yet to see a single authority anywhere in the world actually address this issue. Uh, indeed. Uh, well, will it be for the uh, Health and Social Care and Science and Technology Committees in Parliament to address this issue? I don't think so, based on this report just released. Uh, coronavirus lessons learned to date. Read our report. Uh, so let's have a look at, well, first of all, uh, this uh, they're saying that the COVID-19 pan pandemic put massive strain on the social care sector already under huge pressure. Uh, we find that the UK's preparedness for responding to COVID-19 had important efficiencies. Uh, Groupthink. Uh, was one of the terms that was used. Slow and gradualist uh, was another, uh, significantly worse compared to other countries. Let's have a look at what some of the things they said. For a country with a world-class expertise in data analysis to face the biggest health crisis in 100 years with virtually no data to analyze was an almost unimaginable setback. But of course, the data was available to certain people, but it wasn't made public and it's still not being made public. And when data is made public, it's not comparable with data from other agencies and so on. So it's very impossible, very difficult to get uh, a, a, a rounded picture of what's going on. But of course, if what you're presenting is a fake narrative, uh, then that's hardly surprising. But the committees uh, weren't prepared to consider that possibility. Uh, the slow and gradualist approach that from the government at the beginning was not inadvertent nor did it reflect bureaucratic delay or disagreement between ministers and their advisors. It was deliberate policy. Uh, it was now clear that this was the wrong policy. So the narrative here is that the slow uh, introduction of lockdown was the wrong policy, that lockdown should have been uh, implemented from the beginning, uh, and in fact that it, was, it should have been stronger. Um, so this is the narrative that they want to reinforce. Uh, and who did they use as the 
as the expert, uh, or at least one of the experts that they called on uh, for this. It was none other than Dame Sally Davies, the former chief medical officer. Uh, she left the job in 2018. And uh, Dame Sally Davies said, uh, quite simply, we were in groupthink. Our infectious disease experts really did not believe that SARS or another SARS could get from Asia to us. It's a form of British exceptionalism. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm not sure what planet she's on because, of course, there are a whole bunch of uh, pandemic preparedness documents released over the last 10 years. And while most of them are related to influenza pandemics, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the policy decisions in those equally applied to COVID-19. But also, uh, let's not forget exercise sickness, the UK government exercise, which eventually justified the, uh, the, the uh, COVID-19 lockdown. It took place, I think, in 2018. So, I mean, this is just complete nonsense from Sally Davies. And we can mention... Uh, some of the more international efforts like Event 201 uh, and, and well, uh, Brian has the uh, SPARS document in front of him at the moment. Well, so I'm going to introduce this in, in a minute, Mike, but uh, anybody who's not aware of this, the SPARS, pan, uh, SPARS pandemic 2025-2028 from John Hopkins is a very significant document. We'll give you a little bit of a taster in just a couple of minutes. But uh, maybe uh, when we are deciding whether how much credibility to give Dame Sally Davies, we should just remind ourselves what she said during the uh, Skripal affair. My advice for any individual who thinks they've come into contact with Novichok, wash your clothes and wipe down any personal items, shoes and bags with cleansing or baby wipes before disposing of them in the usual way. So really, um, I'm not clear what planet uh, Dame Well, she's not credible no, if we indeed. use formal language. The woman is not credible if she makes this this type of statement with supposedly a, a weaponized nerve agent. So um, let's get back on how, how the media has dealt with this, because we've started the news today pointing out that we simply cannot trust our old media, the so-called former mainstream media. Here's the Daily Mail. So this was their headline from yesterday, COVID, elderly were just an afterthought. Uh, devastating MPs report lays bare government blunders, 37 billion test and trace branded a fiasco and thousands died in care homes because the elderly were just an afterthought. Well, um, they obviously softened the headlight, uh, headline up by really important news, such as Broadway beckons for Strictly Come Dancing Shirley. This is to confuse the public mind, because while you're concentrating on the importance of the serious COVID headline, your subconscious is taking in the dross around Strictly and Shirley. Uh, but it directed you to page uh, six and seven, and here's the big double page, uh, double page spread, let down by Sage Group Think. That ties in with your report, Mike. And then what do we have? We have a big emotive picture, which is designed to capture your mind, which is simply saying that in this particularly tragic case, and I accept it is because somebody wasn't able to get into uh, a care facility, see their elderly relative, but that draws the mind. What isn't here is any comment about the deaths of hundreds of thousands of elderly people. It simply doesn't exist. These are words on the page, but there's no actual factual information about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that died. If we get into the report, which we're going to encourage our, vid, our uh, viewers and listeners to go and look for this online, you'll find it very uh, quickly, House of Commons Health and 
Social Care and Science and Technology Committee, Coronavirus Lessons Learned to Date. Uh, this is what it all looks like. So get online and get this document and please read it because you will soon see what the problems are. Uh, but uh, here's the contents. So each section uh, divided up uh, pandemic preparedness, lockdowns and social distancing, testing and contact tracing, uh, social care, at-risk communities. Um, each section has its own conclusions and re recommendations. And so it's very easy to get into their statements and see what they're saying that's true, uh, what they're saying that isn't true, and also seeing what they're admitting. But what you can see very uh, uh, clearly from the contents here is that they're simply not dealing with the deaths of elderly people. Um, so let's concentrate over here where we have social care and at-risk communities. Now, you would have thought that elderly people were part of the at-risk communities. But if we expand that on screen, absolutely not the case. So the deaths are very large, the preventable deaths of very large numbers of elderly people is simply brushed under the carpet in social care. Um, where they start talking very quickly about the discharge of patients to care homes, but they don't talk about the deaths. And then six, you see, at-risk communities, Black, Asian and minority ethnic communities and people with learning disabilities. If you read the at-risk section, you're led to believe that actually people with learning disabilities were the most vulnerable of everybody in the country. Which, of course, was nonsense, because when you look at the people who were affected by it, it was but very much the pro profile of normal life. So it was elderly people were the most at risk. Right. So this whole report, we are going to classify as spin. This is the, the end of the contents here. It goes on to section eight, which is conclusions and recommendations, formal minutes. Witnesses. Well, who were the witnesses? Who decided who the witnesses were? Who called them forward? Well, exactly the same people that have been running the whole policy in the first place. So it doesn't take much to get into this and to see that the whole thing is a whitewash. Here is uh, the main part about discharge of patients, where it's talking about uh, 25,000 people being discharged from hospitals into the care homes. But essentially, the fact that thousands and thousands of elderly people have died is not mentioned in the report. Now, I'm delighted to say a few days ago, I was able to interview this uh, funeral director, John O'Looney from Milton Keynes. He's been speaking out very forcibly about what he has seen over the last 18 months, two years about deaths. And at the coalface, this is the sort of person we should be paying attention to. So let's just have a listen to a very very short clip uh, when he was talking to me early one morning. Who was dying when those um, vaccinations started? All of the elderly, all of the elderly. There was a surge of death um, uh, because they are the ones that they started with um, on the vaccinations. It wasn't really, there was the odd young person in there, but it was primarily all elderly, morbidly obese and diabetics, you know, um, and uh, it, I've never known a death rate like it. It was basically anyone that was considered um, vulnerable, they were being targeted for the jabs. They were getting the jabs, and I, I felt that was the cause of death. It was phenomenal from the moment it started. So, so 
that went on from um it was very different to the care home one that was a mixed mixed bag um address wise so a lot of hospital deaths um um you know we as a society we're very good at getting people to die in hospital you know people get sick they they're terminally or they're transferred to hospital for palliative care where they're put on the the, the care path and starved to death with a morphine driver in uh, and that's what was happening it was a mixed bag whereas the year before in march and april that small three-week period that i suspect was midazolam euthanasia was all in care homes exclusively but this was mixed you know, so some of them were in a care home, some of them were hospitals, some of them, what I would call a more regular death pattern, but just a lot more of it, a ridiculous amount of it. I, I can remember the mortuary ringing me, begging me to pick bodies up, um, uh, people crying, I was turning people away. It was a real low point, you know, and that was pandemic levels, uh, no doubt in my mind, it was awful. So that, that, that was from January to about the second week in April, and then it completely evaporated like it had never happened and we we had three or four months of the quietest period that i've ever known we actually lost money um now when i worked for the co-op they had 60 percent market share and that it's a big slice of the pie you know as regards the, the the business and i never ever went to care homes three nights on the trot so to be as a small family funeral home doing about 160 funerals a year to be called exclusively to care homes every night for almost three weeks is unnatural. It's not a normal pattern. It's about as likely as me winning the lottery three or four times on the bounce. It's just not possible statistically, even in a pandemic, exclusively to care homes. It's just not right. So that uh, I felt was wrong. Um, I, I have since found out that at the same time these people were dying, the procurement of a drug called Madab midazolam which is primarily used in care homes to sedate went up between 350 and a thousand percent now there's a clear paper trail for that and i've spoken to a guy who's been collating this using uh, what's called fois freedom of information acts and basically they're a team of people that have written to all of the local um, health authorities etc requesting the information on the amounts purchased for the last four or five years and there's a pattern there because there's a certain number of care homes, a certain number of people in them, and a certain number of procurement of the drugs needed to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, to treat these people. And it's consistent. But in 2020, it went up by up to a thousand percent. At the same time, we were getting called every night to a care home. Um, we'll come back to that. So, so that I felt was wrong. Um, I then had a family who came to me um, and you've got to remember this is at a time March, April, when everyone is panicking. All funeral directors are taking coffins to the hospital. You know, they're sealing people straight in them. There's no washing. There's no dressing. Um, the death rate still wasn't up despite these efforts made in care homes. It was still lower than 2019. Well, just to explain, you, you've got a mixed bag of statements there from him because I put a couple of little clips together. We will get the full interview out as soon as possible. And one of the uh, areas that UK Column was able to get into with John O'Looney was the fact that we've been aware of other undertakers for the last two years who've been uh, took, uh, looking in close detail at deaths of uh, particularly elderly people. And he responded to the questions I was able to put to him. Uh, but what is he saying? He was saying that uh, once the needles went in, uh, the death rate went up. 
Uh, but the, that brings us on to Hansard. Uh, well, I'll just bring this in to just uh, add some weight to what he was saying. This is a Hansard report from the House of Commons. I'm sorry, I haven't got the date on it, but Dr. Evans, a good death needs three things, equipment, medication, and the staff to administer it. On equipment, do you have enough uh, syringe drivers in the NHS to deliver medications to keep people comfortable when they're passing away? Matt Hancock, yes, we have. A challenge was raised on that about eight days ago. It was not a big challenge as was made public and we've resolved it. Dr. Evans, the syringe drivers are used to deliver medications such as midazolam and morphine. Do you have any precautions in place to ensure that we have enough of these medications? Matt Hancock, yes, we have a big project to make sure that the global supply chain for these sorts of medications, as well as the ITU medications that I spoke about earlier, are clear. So the government was planning what was going to happen with these elderly people. So this report is, is a, an extremely disingenuous report. And of course, the so-called mainstream press are simply not investigating the facts. Um, okay, let's move on to, back to Eastern Europe and Lithuania, Alex. And, and uh, what's going on with uh, COVID passports over there? A very great deal is, and before we leave uh, Matt Hancock, Midazlan Matt, I just remind viewers who haven't caught up with the news yet that yesterday, the 12th of October 2021, Matt Hancock announced his appointment as the United Nations Special Representative for Financial Innovation and Climate Change. As a special yeah, you're, you're a bit premature, Alex. We're, we're going to mention that later ah, on in the programme. You're going to Don't mention worry. that. Well, yes. he follows in Peter Stubborn's footsteps and will be working in Ethiopia, a country, of course, troubled by a high demographic growth, uh, but perhaps not for much longer. Right, yeah, over to a country at the other end of the demographic scale, Lithuania, one of the Eastern European countries that has been big problems and worries about its own uh, demography. But this is another matter regarding um, COVID passes. Lithuania is an ideal lab, as John Goss has pointed out in his reblogging uh, re of what was originally the Lithuanian uh, bloggers, uh, Gluboko Lietovas uh, piece. So go to johnplatinumgoss.com to find it easily. It's entitled Lithuania, the devil's own experimental gulag. It's one of those sweet spot lab countries, small population, good competence in English, member of the EU, um, uh, northern latitude, uh, general compliance with government, as we find uh, that many of these factors come together in other such lab countries like Scotland or in the southern hemisphere, New Zealand. And uh, here is one of the things that Mr. Gluboko Lietov, which means deep Lithuania, uh, put out recently, just uh, so people can find this tweet and watch the video if they wish. He's uh, tweeted out a video there saying, life under the EU's first strictly enforced COVID pass regime covering all of society Lithuania. Of course, there's also Slovenia, a similarly sized EU member state in the same zone of Europe, which uh, bans people from uh, filling their cars with fuel now uh, without a pass. Uh, but Lithuania has gone further. And so I put together a screen capture on the next slide of uh, just the length and the embedded photographs of Mr. Gluboko Lietova's um, uh, article. This should very much be read in full when people have got the time and shared. But he starts by talking briefly about what Lithuania is like. Then the cynically named Opportunity Pass comes in. Uh, there are restrictions that apply to people who don't uh, have the benefits of this pass, which he's named in many bullet points. Basically, you don't have a life. You can't worship God. You can't travel. You can't see granny. Uh, you can't get your teeth pulled. Uh, you can't buy your groceries. 
etc etc uh, the solution is to go and get jabbed work is extremely difficult almost italian levels of difficulty in getting to work with one of these now then he talks about using the opportunity pass bear in mind this is an impoverished former soviet country and there's a lot of elderly people or uh, people uh, without work who can't afford smartphones or aren't familiar with them but here we are, we read at this point that a third of the population is going to pharmacies and getting printouts of the QR codes because of the lack of smartphone themselves or not trusting them. Here's Lithuanian supermarkets with their specialist security guards now who've been uh, trained. Here you queue in uh, along a sort of uh, a red carpet to enter the store and a green pillar goes bloop if you have successfully been uh, uh, found to be uh, jabbed and compliant or recently to have had a swab stuck in your nose is an alternative, but you have to keep doing that somewhere to Towards the end of this piece, Mr. Gluboko Lietova points out that if you want to keep a con continually valid negative PCR test, the only kind of test that will be accepted for the unjabbed to, to pass these conditions, that will cost you over a thousand euros a month, which the last I knew was pretty much the average complete salary uh, in a country in, in Lithuania's economic bracket. Um, there he goes on to talk about some more of the uh, aspects of this, I mean, the, the length is, is really not to be balked at because there are several different sections that Mr. Gluboko is putting back together. Here he moves on to why he doesn't want the pass and medical exemptions. It get personal because his wife is expecting their third baby and uh, she's had problems before. So as with similar situations in Australia, to name just one country, the family applied for the wife to get an exemption to the requirements to get part, to, to get jabbed in order to have a pass and was told, no, you, you haven't been near death enough uh, with previous adverse reactions to, to warrant it. And uh, here is their asinine uh, health minister posing with a bunch of happy flashes of their QR, QR code. There's some graphs. Here's a, 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 a screenshot of a young person trying to get into a Lithuanian grocery uh, or hardware store, I think it is, without a pass and being uh, beca becoming a public enemy number one for the week, thanks to Lithuanian police and mainstream TV. An opposition politician is trying to sell uh, mineral water there to cure COVID. So this uh, quackery has come in. This is very poignant now, this bit, because uh, we have reminiscences of the 1990s when the three Baltic republics held their marches and their singing revolutions and their hand-linking chains of protesters uh, and standing on the streets uh, getting gunned down by the KGB and the Red Army at some stages. And he says what this has given way to now is utter apathy. The only kind of protests uh, that aren't old hat to the young generation of Lithuanians are LGBTQIA plus protests. Uh, there's public shaming and death wishes for those who won't comply. He's tried to get in to see a minister or just an official about this pass but he can't as we see on screen at the moment because the ministers say or officials if you want to get into the the ministry for administrative affairs you have to have a covid pass code and he suggested that they might come outside and have an outdoor drink with him and they said no 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 that's more than my job's worth very poignantly he now says where do we move to the rest of the world anywhere you go west of Lithuania is more fascist and he summarizes Austria, Cyprus, France, just staying within the EU for this, the length of this list, Italy where people will have seen the violent protests, Portugal, restrictions on restaurants where I'm sitting in the Netherlands now has COVID passes for restaurants and cafes. So he says for travel, every European country currently limits cross-border travel based on vaccination COVID pass status. He's thought about North America, but even if they'd have him as an asylum seeker, you can't get to North America without a COVID pass. And uh, even if he'd be allowed to leave, which Ukraine doesn't without a COVID pass, you certainly wouldn't be let in without one. So good luck there. Uh, just very briefly, Alex, I mean, we've uh, we've been hearing recently that uh, some Eastern European countries um, are, th there's much more scope for uh, visiting your doctor and perhaps, you know, passing a, a little brown envelope across and, and having uh, 
the the, uh, the injection given, perhaps with the contents missing or something, but still the paperwork gets filled in and so on. Uh, that must be easier in countries, uh, you know, the old the old uh, former Soviet countries uh, still. The corruption and chaos is the salvation of those countries, actually. Some of our viewers, uh, we'll perhaps talk about it in extra time for our subscribers, did get quite offended and upset when I said that there were positive sides to living in Ukraine. Uh, and they said, doesn't Alex know that they've uh, burned pro-Russian people alive? Yes, and we've mentioned it on the news recently, but we're talking about the people, not their governments. The people have a history of wangling their way through corruption and bribing or tricking their way out of uh, liars and cheats and murderers in government. And I'm afraid that's the, the world we're in. If you want to learn from Eastern Europe, you have to take the picture warts and all. And yes, there are countries in Eastern Europe that are a lot freer now because of that. Yeah. Well, we've got to be uh, we've got to be checked so that we're uh, clear of COVID, but we've got to be vaccinated. But what the government, whether it's in UK or the USA or in uh, other Western countries and countries worldwide, what the governments don't want to tell us is what the vaccine adverse effects are. And I'd like to uh, thank our former nurse, Debbie Evans, who's been doing a huge amount of uh, research for her finding on this World Health Organization system called Vigi Access. I am going to encourage our viewers and uh, listeners to go and have a look at this. It is quite extraordinary. But basically, Vigi Access, it said, was launched by the World Health Organization, who in 2015 to provide public access to information in Vigi Base, the WHO global database of, quote, reported potential side effects of medicinal products. Side effects, known technically as adverse drug reactions, ADRs, and adverse events following immunization, AEFIs, are reported by national pharmacovigilance centers or national drug regulatory authorities that are members of the WHO program. So this includes, of course, MHRA in the UK. It also includes the American VAERS system. So uh, if you go to Vigi Access, um, you can find out a lot of interesting things. There was just a um, blown up the uh, report of what they are so that you can see that on screen. And if I uh, get into some of the detail that comes up very quickly, um, they very quickly get into um, caveats. Vigi access is intended as a useful starter point for people who wish to understand more about the types of potential side effects that have been reported in association with the use of medicinal products. However, Vigi access cannot be used to infer any confirmed link between a suspected side effect and any specific medicine. Uh, see the Vigi Access frequently asked questions for a more detailed explanation. So what do they have to say? Well, they say the information on the website relates to potential side effects, that is symptoms and other circumstances that have been observed following the use of a medicinal product, but which may or may not be related to or caused by that product. Uh, two, um, information on potential side effects should not be interpreted as meaning that the medicinal product or its active substance either cause the observed effect or is unsafe to use. Confirming a causal link is a complex process that requires a thorough scientific assessment and detailed evaluation. And of course, that is the exact process that the UK's MHRA is not conducting um, or if it is conducting it, it is simply not telling the public what results have been found. So interesting to see who echoing this. Uh, Vigi access cannot be used to determine the likelihood of a side effect occurring. 
Fiji Access cannot be used to compare the safety profiles of different medicinal products. The information on Fiji Access should not be used in isolation to make any decisions regarding a patient's treatment program. This is extraordinary language, as we will see in a moment. So when you get on the site, uh, this is what you will go to if you put COVID-19 into the vaccine into the search box. And you have to do that because you can't search for the individual drug name. Uh, what will come up then is with a broad uh, category of adverse drug reactions for um, vaccinations. So we've got all of the usual blood and lymphatic cardiac disorders, ear and uh, labyrinth disorders, immune system disorders. And uh, just to help you through it, um, this should play as a little video. So let's press uh, the start. Uh, we're talking about millions of reports coming in, uh, but hopefully this is going to show us uh, that uh, there is an awful lot to see. So this is back to the main menu on screen now with uh, a great number, and we're going to click on nervous system disorders and see what sort of things have been recorded. And uh, what are we at? 597,000 for the top one, and the list goes on and on. And if you click for more reactions under this, it goes further, and we will find that we can still continue. There's too many adverse reactions to comment on. So we're going to say, please go to the website and look for yourself. And uh, this is all of the sort of key reactions that we've been talking about, and indeed warning of people being paralyzed from the vaccine. But we are, um, we are to believe that this is uh, data being collected from countries worldwide. So that list for that one subheading is still going on. And uh, we'll shortly move on to the next one, which uh, I think is going to be pregnancy. Let, let's just let this uh, run through at the moment. An extraordinary number of reactions. And now we can go on to problems with pregnancy. And again, we're seeing a list which is so long, we've had to make a video of it. And uh, when we get to the end of it, we still need, I think, to click to expand it. And uh, the next one we've chosen, uh, which really will uh, not show on screen all of the things, is for psychiatric disorders, um, where we've got uh, over 107,000 listed. And again, we've got to click on more boxes. So that's really it, Mike. Truly astonishing to see that these adverse reactions are recorded. But who says, as does the MHRA and the American VIRS system, um, well, don't believe that this is a vaccine adverse reaction because we need to check it first, except they're not actually checking it. And in the meantime, the rollout continues. In, and in the meantime, the rollout continues. Now, let me just jump back to this document. This is from John Hopkins Center for Health Security. It's the SPARS pandemic. 2025-2028, and it says that it's a futuristic scenario for public health risk communicators. There's a disclaimer, which I'd like to read to our viewers and listeners. This is a hypothetical scenario designed to illustrate the public health risk communication challenges that could potentially emerge during a naturally occurring infectious disease outbreak requiring development and distribution of novel and or investiga uh, investiga 
investigational drugs, vaccines, therapeutics, or other medical countermeasures. The infection, the infectious pathogen, medical countermeasures, characters, news media excerpts, social media posts, and government agency responses described herein are entirely fictional. Now, this is dated 2017, before COVID appeared, but it's a look into the future in 2025, 2028. However, when we go to section uh, to chapter 16, which is vaccine injury, I'm just going to hold it up. You won't be able to read it, but to prove that we're reading the real document, uh, we find in this section, it starts saying this, while the federal government appeared to have appropriately addressed concerns around the acute side effects of Corovax, the long-term chronic effects of the vaccine were still largely unknown. Nearing the end of 2027, reports of new neurological symptoms began to emerge. After showing no adverse side effects for nearly a year, several vaccine recipients slowly began to experience symptoms such as blurry vision, headaches and numbness in their extremities. So we are to believe that somebody had a crystal ball that was so effective, it could name tens and tens of points, which we have seen in the COVID-19 pandemic. They were predicting with a crystal ball, which also predicted that people were going to suffer in their hundreds of thousands from neurological effects. This cannot possibly be true, Mike. We cannot have a crystal ball that's so accurate across so many layers. This to me represents a plan. And I think the evidence uh, which we can drill into over the coming days and weeks will show that this plan has been unleashed via the response to COVID-19. Okay. I mean, I can't be more forceful about it. That's the document. You can find it online. We are to believe that somebody could predict all of this, including the fact that hundreds of thousands of people were going to suffer from neurological pro uh, problems as a result of having the vaccine. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to uh, um, global warming, I suppose, in a sense, uh, or at least the Green New Deal policy, Alex and the Netherlands. Uh, what's going on over there with respect to farms? The Attorney General, as reported here by the Rotterdam-based Algemeen Dagblad, has written advice to the Minister of Agriculture, Carola Schouten, which has leaked out, uh, and it refers... Uh, you've just, we just uh, lost you, your audio there for a second. Oh, that's quite unfortunate. We've, we've lost Alex. Are you, back, are you back, Alex? No, he's not. Okay. We'll come back. We'll, we'll try to come back to this one. That's a real shame because that's an important story. Um, and uh, let's see, where can we go now? Are you back, Alex? I think we're through. Switch to David. Uh, yeah, okay. So, okay, apologies for that. Let's, one, let's move on. Um, no, well... Yeah, okay, so we'll move on to, to David then, and uh, and this uh, freezing Antarctic winter shatters records, David. Yes, this is the American Spectator reporting on, well, you would have thought the most important global climate story 
uh, of them all. Uh, because the area with most ice that's uh, sitting on land, and if it melts, it will raise sea level, is of course Antarctic. Uh, the area that we're always being told is most vulnerable to uh, meddling humanity is the Antarctic. And here we have an all-time record, all-time record coldness. Um, so the uh, average temperatures uh, were uh, a cosy minus 78 degrees Fahrenheit. Individual temperatures hit as low as minus 144. This is the coldest South Pole winter since records began in 1957. That's a very strange uh, data point. Uh, and you know, uh, it wasn't reported in the BBC. Not a word. Even CNN reported it, but the BBC didn't care. Uh, we have an all-time record in temperature in Antarctica, the BBC decided that you shouldn't know about it. Um, uh, meanwhile, um, it, we, we were assured we would have uh, wet and windy and stormy conditions in Britain, and that's not happening either. Uh, CNBC reporting here, UK energy titan Scottish and Southern Energy says low wind and driest conditions in 70 years hit renewable generation. Uh, they had 32% less power because the wind did not blow, uh, and it's also been dry. Um, and uh, this is um, also against the official narrative. But you're not going to know about this very soon. Uh, here we have a tweet warning of this. Big tech has spoken. It's time to end the debate about climate change. Um, so here we've got the Mail Online talking about this in a bit more detail. Um, quoting that tweet and then saying it's uh, Google's accused of authoritarian behaviour, do you think? Uh, after announcing it will ban climate change deniers from making money from their YouTube sites. So it goes on to ex explain that uh, Google, who own YouTube, uh, are basically going to censor all um, negative comment about climate change and prevent it being monetized in order to drive that particular viewpoint out of um, the public uh, discourse. And there's a little meme here to il illustrate what is happening. Uh, so we see here all of the media giants lined up and they are the firing squad for free speech. And it seems to be the White House here that's given, it's given the order to fire. Yes, indeed. Uh, I think uh, Alex is back. Alex, are you there? I am, yes. Uh, yeah, so just the browser let me down there. Okay, just briefly uh, tell us what was going on with French farm or with uh, Dutch farmers. Yes, well, David just mentioned 1957. I can trump him there because I have Belgian and Dutch sources from 1948-49 saying that farmers need to be cleared off the land because they're not fit for the new world. And with the small matter of a seven or eight decade hiatus, we've reached that point. So what we briefly showed on screen was the Rotterdam newspaper Algemeen Dagblad leaking advice from the Dutch Attorney General to the Dutch uh, uh, farming minister, Carola Schouten, telling her that in response to her undisclosed original memo, uh, he can report that there are no legal obstacles he can foresee to issuing expropriation orders uh, or otherwise removing the licenses to farm of farmers who fail to meet arbitrary nitrogen, uh, well, what do they call them? Nitrogen emission targets. They're actually nitrous oxide emission targets, often lazily reported as nitrogen over here, a bit like CO2 is, is often called carbon. So with this, the uh, Netherlands government joins the ranks of, I think, pretty much only Zimbabwe and Venezuela and uh, being a country considering expropriation of farmers for ideological purposes. 
Um, just uh, briefly, Alex, is the Netherlands, how food independent is the Netherlands at the moment? Very worryingly so to the globalists. Uh, where I'm sitting is just one part of the country that's covered in high spec greenhouses. The Netherlands produces by value, by monetary value, more food exports than any other country other than the United States, even though it's a fingernail of land, uh, simply because they're extremely good at producing high value, nutritious meat and veg. And uh, this has enraged globalists, I'm afraid, for far too long. In fact, the farmers union, uh, the official one, of course, is, has been captured. Uh, but there is a breakaway group that actually calls themselves the Farmers Defence League, strong out in the east of the country towards the German border. And uh, their spokesman is quoted in the regional paper there, the Gelderlander, as saying that they are ready to drink the blood of those who are going to expropriate them. Uh, these aren't Zimbabwean farmers, right? These are Dutchmen, so they mean it figuratively. But that's the level the rage has got to. And uh, you know, the, the only response from the Agriculture Ministry that they've come up with is, uh, it's such a shame that, ki that farmers are disturbed around their breakfast table uh, by these thoughts that they might be expropriated. This is something they shouldn't have known until it was too late. Uh, right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's uh, let's move on then. If you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org/community and there are options to help us out. That'd be very much appreciated and much needed. Uh, and also, please share our material on the various platforms. Uh, once again, thank you very much to everybody who has uh, ordered a hoodie from the UK column shop. I believe. Uh, uh, many of you have received uh, them already and uh, got one. I noticed a comment in the chat box earlier saying that uh, somebody had received one. And uh, Lynn here saying, just to tell you, I received the hoodie today and wore it while walking this afternoon. It's very comfortable, very snug. Thank you very much. So thank you very much, Lynn, and everybody who has uh, grabbed one of those. Keep you OK in those minus 144 degree Fahrenheit temperatures. Uh, indeed. Uh, uh, but uh, not so good news. Uh, Patrick Henningsen's uh, Twitter account has now been uh, shut down by Twitter. Permanently suspended uh, is the, uh, the term used. Not quite sure how something could be permanently suspended, but there you go. Uh, and uh, well, that in this case is because of uh, alleged medical misinformation. But as as uh, David has just shown, uh, they're about to roll this policy out, no longer just to COVID, but to uh, climate change uh, discussion as well. So uh, anybody in the climate change arena is going to find the same level of uh, censorship uh, going forward on that one. And I'm going to add to that that uh, when you start doing the research into the John Hopkins spans, SPARS pandemic uh, setup, you will find links back to the big controlling agencies around the whole of the media and the vaccination programme. And we will be reporting more on that. Uh, now, uh, if uh, anybody, any of you were watching uh, David Ellis's programmes uh, before Christmas, uh, you would have be familiar with this gentleman, uh, Dennis Hutchings, former uh, British Army uh, soldier uh, who served in Northern Ireland. Uh, and he is in court in Belfast at the moment, uh, facing a murder charge and uh, uh, grievous bodily harm charge. Um, so here we've got an image uh, from uh, Vasa UK. They were tweeting this out today. Various veterans and loyal supporters of Soldiers A to Z united in their love and support for Dennis Hutchings on day four of this farce of a trial. So the trial has been going on for a few days. It started, uh, I think, last week. Um, and this is because of an incident that happened uh, in the 70s in uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, where somebody shot uh, a, uh, so a guy with learning difficulties that had been uh, uh, running across some fields uh, in the middle of the night. 
it was dark uh, and so on. Now, I'm not going to make any comment about what actually happened because I don't know the details of it. Uh, but uh, the point here is, uh, and Alex, I'm going to ask you for comment on this. The point here is that uh, there was an agreement as a result of the Good Friday Agreement that um, people, members of the IRA and members of uh, the terrorist organizations on the Republican side were given immunity for prosecution for uh, events which took place in Northern Ireland over the Troubles. Uh, that, say, for some reason, doesn't seem to have happened with respect to uh, military personnel serving over there. And there have been a number of spurious prosecutions. Many of them have failed in recent months. Uh, and at least this tweet is suggesting uh, that this should fail as well because they describe it as a farce of a trial. Uh, but my question is, uh, you can only have law uh, whenever law is equally applied. Uh, and where you have a deal for one side of a conflict and not for the other, um, then you're effectively not operating under the rule of law at all. You most certainly aren't, Mike. And it's actually uh, personally Tony Blair, we now know as a result of recent revelations, who is responsible for this uh, lopsided agreement, because after the Belfast or Good Friday Agreement of Good Friday 1998, uh, Tony Blair actually put a significant amount of effort uh, into uh, personally negotiating the agreement. Uh, it wasn't the EU back then championing the Irish Republic and the Irish Republican side. It was the USA. Uh, Senator Mitch McConnell is an honest broker, apparently, but the Clinton regime behind him. And we see this with Biden right now talking to uh, Johnson in similar terms, uh, championing a particular vision of Irish nationalism as a result of which the so-called on-the-runs in the United States and other jurisdictions, the Republic of Ireland, were given what were called comfort letters from the Northern Ireland office, and an appendage of MI5 basically, saying if you come back to Northern Ireland or any other British jurisdiction, you won't be prosecuted. This was never extended to uh, servicemen throughout the conflict, and Hutchings, Hutchings, of course, being in Northern Ireland now for his trial, is going to face a so-called Diplock Court, another removal of the rule of law. No, Hutchings no. is not apparently entitled to a, a true trial of his peers. Instead, he's going to be pried by, tried by judges sitting alone because of a decades out of date, uh, tenuous claim that a jury could be nobbled by terrorists. Yes, indeed. Thank you for that. Now, if anybody wants some additional background to this case, uh, if you go to the UK Column website and go to the videos uh, section, uh, the video menu, you'll find the David Ellis report. Um, and uh, uh, the very first episode of that was was Lawfare. Um, and uh, the, David was interviewing Dennis Hutchings, among other uh, things. And uh, you get the detail there. Sorry, Alex, what, what is it you're showing us here? Ebook and paper book called Tony Blair and the IRA written by Austin Morgan, A-U-S-T-E-N. And uh, this is from the last couple of years, a paper trail has come out showing that Blair personally negotiated the supremacy at law of terrorists over servicemen. Yeah, okay, thanks, Alex, thanks for that. Okay, so uh, let's just briefly mention this. Uh, the uh, beating the war drums, because Liz Truss uh, has been hosting uh, the foreign ministers from Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, Lithuania sorry, uh, to what they describe as reaffirm a commitment to security cooperation in the Baltic region. Um, and uh, well, what could this possibly be about? Here's what uh, Liz Truss had to say. The UK's partnership with our Estonian, Latvian and Lithuanian allies is based on our shared goals on security. So, of course, we can imagine what that means. It means Russia, of course. But what was interesting was the use of language in the press release. Their joint statement also sets out the importance of NATO 
as the cornerstone of Euro-Atlantic security. Uh, Alex, just very, very briefly, please. But but this, I thought, was quite spectacular because it's the European Union uh, that uses this term that NATO is the cornerstone of its security and particularly the cornerstone of its defence union. But now we're seeing NATO as being the cornerstone of Euro-Atlantic defence. Uh, and so we are absolutely seeing more and more evidence that this idea of defence union is being expanded beyond the borders of Europe uh, and actually becoming a much more broad, uh, if we take AUKUS into, into, into uh, account, for example, a much more broad idea. Again, and the photos will be an extra time for our subscribers, as I flew out of Ukraine, which neighbours at least one of those countries, but of course isn't in um, the EU, I saw that NATO even pretends that Ukraine and Georgia are in it for certain purposes through extensions like Partnership for Peace. Again, the British government is in the lead there because the displays at the airport when you leave are all about how Ukraine is a de facto member of NATO and uh, de facto covered by an Article 5 guarantee because of the shared values of democracy, freedom and security and so on. And also uh, apologies that I mixed up the names of two US senators. The broker of the 1998 accord was, of course, Senator George Mitchell, not Mitch McConnell, a more recent senator. Yes. OK, thank you for that. OK, and uh, just to end today, um, let's move on to this. Uh, we were talking about this last week. Brian, uh, the former head of the Royal Marines, struggling to cope with Britain's withdrawal from Afghanistan and who uh, took his own life as a as a result, or was it as a result? Well, this is a whole point, absolutely tragic story because this very good man is no longer with us. But uh, on Wednesday last week, we raised a number of questions. And remarkably, um, the next day, the mail picked up on it. Um, you reported a little bit more on Friday last week, but uh, we just want to get back into this story because there is a lot more to it that's coming out in the press. So let's just do a recap. This was the mail headline. Um, we asked some questions. Well, he was found, found dead. That's the uh, tragic part. But he lost his job as Commandant General of the Royal Marines, the professional head of the force. Uh, it said that he had been awarded the Distinguished Service Order for his leadership on the front line of Afghanistan. So this man wasn't uh, um, a backroom back warrior. This was a man who'd been there on the front line and, and uh, received his DSO for his performance under fire. But he was removed from his position as Commandant General early in April, which was just 20 months into a three-year posting. So that was a very, very significant step. Somebody was clearly after him. Um, the Daily Telegraph said, speaking to the Daily Telegraph, a defence source said the decision to replace him was made due to, quote, restructuring of the Royal Navy, uh, but added that Major General Holmes was upset by his removal. Now, we picked up on the restructuring because we've been following what's been happening with Britain's military, whether it's part of the European Defence Union or with the so-called Brexit. Um, uh, one of the things uh, that a friend said was that he was particularly worried that the sacrifice and all the service uh, might have been in vain because we had to get out of Afghanistan. So um, part of the story is that uh, he really couldn't cope. Um, he was a bit unhappy about Afghanistan. We asked some questions. We said, did Major General Holmes upset the Tory government and political establishment by warning the British troops and the people of Afghanistan were being betrayed? in the withdrawal. And uh, we asked whether he lost his job as a result. Um, we also picked up on the fact that under the Times picture, 
it said that the family had said that he couldn't get a job. And this was very significant because senior officers, when they leave the military, are given jobs on a plate. Which one of these do you want to choose? So if he wasn't able to get a job, I think the uh, truth of the matter is the screws were being put on him. But his death was cynically being used to say that the military were going to be given annual uh, mental health MOTs. This is what Leo Doherty um, said for the uh, Ministry of Defence. Um, and we asked what sort of mental health programme was being planned because we've known that very, very sinister stuff has been going on around the mental health of both serving military people and veterans. Well, let's come into the mail. And uh, the mail seems to have picked up on the UK column report. New head of the armed forces, Admiral Sir Tony Radikin, is accused of, quote, undermining a Marines general who killed himself after bitter fallout over changes to the Navy Corps. The language used in this report is wrong because it's not a Marines general, it's a Royal Marines general. And the Navy Corps smacks of American language. And I think we'll begin to see why this is happening. Um, but this is what uh, Sir Tony Radikin was quoted as saying in a top level report, which has suddenly been made available to the mail. I will engage with ministers and our international partners. The debate has to be toned down and ideally stopped. This is about my authority, international engagement by Commandant General Royal Marines, Major General Holmes, is to stop. The Commandant General Royal Marines' focus is to ensure the Corps delivers on its tasks, seeking opportunities for, quote, increased integration with the Royal Navy and preparing for a more limited role as CGRM from April 2021. So he's being told that his job is going to get less. And why is this going to happen? Because the Royal Marines are going to be uh, swallowed up into the Royal Navy. Now, they are part of the Royal Navy now, but uh, everything we are seeing is that the Royal Marines are going to be chopped. They're going to be cut down. Uh, so in the article, it repeated this message, which Major General Matt Holmes has said to other people. He'd had a very tough year. He didn't trust um, Admiral Radikin. It's been awful. You should see the tone of some of his emails I've had from Radikin, basically imposing his authority and keeping me constrained, kept away from ministers, all about his narrative. Remember that expression, all about his narrative. He doesn't get the core. But I know General David Berger, head of the, Mar the US Marine Corps, recognises my concerns. And uh, so this was, this was a pretty heartfelt thing from this man. And um, he, he'd said essentially that Radican sees himself as owning the relationship between the Royal Marines and the US Marine Corps. And clearly Major General Holmes was uh, not happy with this. He also said that he disagreed about closer integration of the Marines with the Navy. And we also know that in the background, the intention is the Royal Marines are simply to be transformed into a US-style ranger force. Um, so spin by the Daily Mail, they mentioned appearance. And um, we want to come to the facts. The facts are that this was a very well-respected Major General. He was well-liked by the Royal Marines and he enjoyed their company. He'd served in all Britain's recent conflicts and he'd won his DSO. Now, let's come on to Admiral Tony Radikin. What sort of a man is him? He, we can see that the Royal Marine 
uh, general is a man who's done the business. He's been there in the field of fire. But this is part of the CV from the government's website about Admiral Tony Radikin. Uh, he's commanded from Lieutenant to Rear Admiral of Ashore, Afloat and International Forces. This includes HMS Blazer and uh, Southampton University Unit, HMS Norfolk, the Naval Training Team in Iraq, the Iraqi Maritime Task Force, Portsmouth Naval Base and Commander of UK Maritime Forces and NATO's High Readiness Maritime Component Commander. I was astonished when I read this, Mike, because HMS Blazer is a toy training vessel for the universities, uh, and HMS Norfolk is a very old Type 23 frigate, and yet the man now running all of our forces, this is the only operational experience he has. The other jobs are, are what? So he has no operational experience? Well, he has, in my opinion, he has no in-depth um, Alex, I've got a little bit more, so watch. Very, very briefly, Alex, though, please. Extremely briefly. I don't know what Brian's complaining about. Just take a look at the uh, wonderful Plymouth sound behind you in the studio there, and you can see that the Royal Navy has got a fleet of warships anchored right there, hasn't it? And, and as for as for uh, the, the role of the Commandant General of the Royal Marines, the last but two, Major General Charles Stickland, engaged in, uh, in Twitter uh, boasts all the time about sending his boys off to the Balkans and international engagement. And of course, when David Ellis asked him, uh, do you have the European Union Command and Control Centre right there in your bunker in North London? He replied, that is correct. Uh, also confirming in reply to that tweet uh, that there were five others dotted around Europe. Thank, thank you. Thank you for that, Alex. Um, uh, very interesting point about the ships. We've got a little video clip coming up, which I, I think you'll see the significance of. Just finish off his CV, his staff appointments have predominantly been in either joint or defence roles, two tours as a military assistant, two tours involving, quote, financial capability and strategic force development. More recently, he was chief of staff to the Joint Forces Command, second Sea Lord, and his education includes reading law at Southampton University, qualifying as a barrister, an MA in International Relations and Defence Studies, the Higher Command Staff Course, the London Business School Senior Executive Programme. He's also graduated from several US courses, including, quote, the US Combined Forces Maritime Component Course, Capstone, and the inaugural UK-US Future Leaders Course. Well, that explains why he's got no operational experience, because he, he can't have been doing anything other than that for the last 30 years. Uh, this, is, this is a man who, when you say, what are his qualifications for being out in the military field, I, I can't actually find an answer. Now, I'm going to uh, say a big thank you to the gentleman who runs this podcast, the Mariner's Mirror podcast, because it was one of the few places that I could find some information, real information about Admiral Sir Tony Radikin. So this was a, an interview that this gentleman, Dr. Sam Willis, did. Encourage everybody to go and uh, boost his viewing numbers. He's only got 948 views. Please watch this interview. But uh, we've just taken a couple of clips. Um, astonishing interview. Let's hear Admiral Sir Tony Radican in action. First of all, I do 
love your office? Did you choose it to make it as like being on a ship as possible without actually being on one? So uh, well, I suppose we're lucky. So um, this is a fantastic place to base a Navy headquarters. So um, we're at the top of the harbour. We're on Whale Island. The island was created by the excavation of Portsmouth Harbour. Uh, and so it seems a suitable place to have a Navy headquarters. And it's fantastic to have large windows. And it's great for me to be able to look out and see our ships. Uh, I think it's less good for our ship CEOs to know that <laughs> they're, they're, they're under the gaze of the, of the headquarters. But no, it's, uh, we're, we're lucky. Yeah. Do you miss being on board a ship? I do, I, I, because um, I think for most of us, your first 10 years are intimately on board ship. You then tend to have a mixture the next 10 years, and then you tend to be a bit further away from the bridge in, your, in, in, in the following 10 years, if that's an easy way of describing it. And there's a comfort. It's, it's, in a way, it's reassuring that when you go back to a ship, and um, whether it's the ladders or it's the food or it's the smell, uh, personally, I don't like going to ships and not, uh, not going up to the bridge. Yeah. Um, and I still can't understand the engineering community that can just descend into the engine rooms uh, and you chat to the chefs and they've got the, and you know, what's the latest buzz and so on. I think that's probably never changed. I love this. Uh, this is a brilliant graphic. And to me, this describes the world that we're actually in which is a world dominated by the sea, and the different colours represent the different trades that go around the world on the sea. Um, let's just uh, finish by referring back to this map again, and here's little old UK here. How, how do you cope with being a relatively small navy faced with immense powers in East, in China and America? So, so, so we have the good fortune of being able to then blend our Navy with these other navies so that you can multiply your effect around the world. So he's talking about integration. Uh, well, blending, we are talking, blending. there's not going to be a Royal Navy anymore. There's going to be a blend of the Royal Navy with other navies. So we're very proud that we've got our aircraft carrier operating and it's got American aircraft on. And if they were Swedish aircraft or anybody else who wants to land on our aircraft carrier, this is absolutely uh, wonderful. This interview is truly incredible. Encourage viewers to go and look at it. Um, but when I got to the end of it, uh, Mike, the first thing I'm thinking of, this man does not look like the man to be leading Britain's armed forces. He comes across, what does he come across? He comes across as a sort of slightly eccentric academic. And his experience to get him into the position that he's in is clearly totally political. He was chosen by Boris Johnson. Uh, what better accolade? What better accolade? Uh, Alex, very briefly, uh, just uh, let's finish off with one uh, graphic, uh, one meme here. Tell us, uh, tell us about this. Uh, this is from one of the sunnier climes where people go around on motorbikes a lot. And the meme is, you know the brainwashing is real when you see someone outside on a motorcycle wearing a mask, but no helmet. And doesn't he look pleased with himself there? Yes. That's quite incredible. Well, I'm afraid we're absolutely out of time. We are out of time. So we're going to thank um, Alex and David for uh, joining us. So thank you all to our, all of our viewers and listeners. I just want to say that we've been informed that there's going to be a Freedom March in Plymouth that Saturday coming the 16th of October. 
which I think is going to be at Derry's Cross Roundabout and Rally Road's Coach Stop. So the timing is 11 a.m. for 11.30 start. Uh, there's also going to be veterans on parade and uh, it's a march which will end at the sundial, which is in the centre of Plymouth, uh, with leafleting. And of course, that will be a well-informed, peaceful march where people are really trying to um, uh, to educate others as to what's really going on. So I'm going to say a very big thank you to that uh, for that notice. And also, I'm going to say that we will, by the end of the day, have the Christine Cotton interview up, and that is the biostatistician talking about why uh, the trials around the vaccine simply cannot be true and why we should not trust the adverse reaction data, be it in the American VAERS system or the MHRA system. So look out for that one. We'll be back in a few minutes on the main live stream if you are a UK call member for Extra and otherwise 1pm Friday as usual with Patrick. Indeed. And well done, Patrick. He's been censored. <laughs> Okay, yes, thanks for okay. <laughs> thanks for joining us. Bye bye. See you then. Bye bye.